On April 6, 2018, a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos hockey team was struck by a semi, killing 16 people. In this episode, Chris Beaudry, who was driving behind the bus, joins me in a conversation about his experience and his healing. Chris is now a speaker who shares stories from his life to help others. My name is Lisa. This is Rising Strong Mental Health and Resilience. This podcast came about because I believe in the healing power of stories. They teach us and they connect us. Please be warned that some details might be disturbing to some listeners. Today, I have Chris Beaudry with me, who is sharing his experiences with pain and his journey forward. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you have been through a lot, starting with your childhood. Tell us about your life at home when you were growing up. You know, when I was a kid, I really thought that I had a great childhood. And part of the reason, too, that I thought that was my parents told me how good it was. And that being said, there were aspects that were really good. But growing up with a mom who was an addict, she had a lot of difficulties. There was always that background uncertainty of like, is mom going to be there when I get home? How many more days until we get beat again? What's going to be the thing that sets her off this time? And when my dad who worked away, even when he was home, it's like, okay, how many more days till we have the sleepless night where we just hear them screaming till 11 o'clock or we hear mom screaming and dad just sitting at the table quietly. Wow. That must've been really hard. We all grow up in these little silos And as kids, we think that what we're experiencing is normal. When did you get to a point where you thought, hmm, most kids aren't experiencing this kind of thing? (laughs) My, my 30s? (laughs) Oh, really? Well, yeah. Like I, I assumed, I assumed everyone was spanked. I thought everyone would hide it and be like, oh, I got a little slap on the hand. And I thought they were just sugarcoating things being like, oh no, you were, you were taken out to the barn and had your ass totally kicked, weren't you? Or your mom broke wooden spoons over your ass. And when I realized that that wasn't normal and that's not how everyone is raised, I started to question kind of all of the scenarios in life. It's like, oh, your sister didn't get left at school. Your your mom didn't run away when you guys were in the bathtub. Those things don't happen to everyone. So that must have scarred you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the the whole abandonment thing has been probably one of the main themes that I've worked with in my my life through addictions, through healing. It still has funny ways of showing up. It's like part of the way that I, I tried to heal that as a kid was to try to be special, try to be better than everyone else. And if I was really good or really special, maybe mom wouldn't run away. Maybe dad would stay home from work. He wouldn't go to Africa for work. Mm -hmm. And I was just at my mentors last week and we were talking about just the mind and how it works. And I kind of chuckled and I'm like, my mind really sneakily still wants me to be special. And I've still got to stay on top of that every day. It's interesting how 
our coping mechanisms, they're always at work. And I think our traumas, our grief, our tragedies, they stick with us. In the beginning of my book, I talk about carrying this suitcase. In my situation, it's grief. But I think we all have this bag of junk that we carry around with us. And, you know, some days it's, it's heavier than others. I think it's always there. And sometimes it creeps to the surface a little bit more. In your teens and your 20s, you're trying to silence these feelings and also battling unworthiness, which I'm finding really interesting here in this conversation because you're just telling me how you're trying to be so special and yet you felt so unworthy. Why did you feel this way? And how did you handle those feelings? Well, I think they go hand in hand. And the these patterns I find adapt and change throughout early childhood. And I was trying to be special to make mom stay. I was trying to be special to make dad stay. Mm -hmm. And when I couldn't be special enough, I couldn't do enough because dad would still go to work and mom would still have those meltdowns and hit us or lock herself in her room for the whole evening. And it's like, well, it can't be them because they're the adults. And now mm -hmm. granted, this is five, six, seven-year-old me talking right now. It couldn't be the adults because that's where safety comes from. That's where food comes from. That's where structure comes from. So it has to be me. And if I can't be special enough, then I must be a loser. I must be no good. And it was, I was really young, really young the first time I contemplated suicide because I was like, I must be worthless. I must be no good if mom does this to me. If dad leaves, for three, four weeks at a time and is only home for two to three days. He's leaving because I'm no good. And you know, that it sounds horrible, but there's also a beautiful aspect to that is that I created that. My parents didn't. Those horrible things that happened to me weren't my choosing, but that mm -hmm. belief was. And because I chose that belief, that means that I'm the one that gets to free myself from it today. It's not up to my mom or dad. It's up to me. That is powerful, Chris. Very powerful. So then you're battling between, you know, making yourself feel special and feeling unworthy. Your your mental health sounds like it's not doing well if you're contemplated suicide at this point. How did this lead into drinking? Well, early on, now. Before I touched a drink, I used to say this all the time, like four or five years ago when I was public speaking, that I knew I was an addict before I was an addict. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's changed a bit nowadays. I, would, I think that everyone's addicted and we're all addicted to the mind and just our thinking pro processes that how we use the mind to escape or we use the mind to grasp or create and keeps us from feeling what we're hap what's happening right now. And for me, at seven or eight years old, I was an addict to anger mm. because I knew inside like what was happening internally was horrible. It, it, it you felt ugh, so gross and afraid. And but when I would play video games and lose and freak out, throw the remote, kick the Super Nintendo in the basement in Calgary, what what happens when you have those big meltdowns? Our, our brain does something, re releases some endorphins. And you get that, oh, 
moment. Mm-hmm. And it was at eight years old. I was like, wow, when I freak out, I get this moment of peace, this moment of clarity. How can I push this? How can I push the limits with this where it's okay to do this so I can get those moments? And I found I could do that in sports. I could do that in ball. If we lost a game, I was allowed to throw a little tantrum. I wasn't too actually that upset about it, but it would give me that release, that quick hit. Mm -hmm. And of course, at times you, you'd get in trouble for it. You get in a fight at school, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter because I got that 20 minutes of release. And that followed me into when we moved to Saskatchewan. And the first time I got drunk, I was running down the railroad tracks at Nakam, Saskatchewan with a friend. And I looked at him and I said, we've got to do this more often. And I don't think he understood why I said that. Mm-hmm. For me, I particularly didn't like the feeling of being drunk. But I knew after that first two drinks, I was like, this story that I'm not safe, that I'm going to be abandoned, that I'm no good, that story's gone. Wow. And you know what? At a young age, alcohol worked for me. It did until it didn't. Mm. And that's what I didn't know is that it wasn't going to continue to work. So that's when I mixed in alcohol and anger started to fight and they worked until they didn't and then it was drugs and which worked but every time that window where they work got shorter and shorter and shorter so then it was alcohol and drugs then alcohol drugs and anger and then it was just chaos then i was living back where i was at five six and seven again i'm curious was anger the common thread through all of this yeah and even in sobriety, it was it was probably the hardest one to break. Because if I had to explore the anger, I would have to look what was beneath that, which mm-hmm. was which was sadness. And what are good little boys not supposed to feel? They're allowed right. to they're allowed to be angry. Can't be sad though. But would you say that the expression of your angry feelings maybe was learned from your early childhood? Yeah. I mean, I love, I love talking about anger because I think when anger functions, like in its purest form, it's clarity. It shows us what we're okay with and what we're not okay with. It's subtle and clear. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't hurt you, but we're not really taught that. We're taught a type of anger that doesn't function well. It hurts me. It hurts you. It's muddied. It's big. It's, it's not subtle. It's clouded. And that's what I was taught. And when you're told that that's okay, men, boys, they're allowed to feel angry. They're allowed to feel this. Well, then you're able to form whatever kind of belief around it you want. And for me, that was, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with fighting people. There's nothing wrong with going to the rider game and punching someone on the way out, that those things are normal behavior when that's absolutely abnormal. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that at home. I've seen like when mom throws a chair at you for spilling milk or when you turn the AC on in the car in the winter, when you get home, you get beat with a wooden spoon. You start to think that type of stuff is normal. Wow. I think that anger can actually be used in a healthy way. 
For example, when we lost our daughter in a car accident, I used my anger to push the city to erect lights around the dark part of the road where she died. Now, when I say anger, it was not yelling and screaming anger. It was the anger that I felt inside for her death. And so I think that there we can use anger for good, but we have to be a little bit more in tune with our emotions in order to do that. Do you agree? 100%. I think that you need to be skillful with all your emotions. I like the word functioning. I used to call it healthy and unhealthy. But again, I find that you could be on a slippery slope where people can self-shame. Oh my God, I'm using unhealthy anger. Mm. Anger, to me, again, it, when I, I understand it, when I work with it now, it is one of my greatest tools for showing me how to set boundaries. You're like, This is what I'm okay with. This is what I'm not okay with. And now I don't express those boundaries in a way I used to. I mean, in the past, it'd be like, rah, 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 rah. you better listen to me. Instead, it's more, it's a grounded place in me that's quiet and calm. That's just very short and simple. Mm-hmm. I'm not okay with what's happening here. This is what I'm okay with. And I think it's a great tool for conversation. Absolutely. When did you realize you needed help, whether it was with your addiction or with your anger? And how did you go about getting that help? Oh, I was, I, I think I was still in high school. I knew I was on a a slippery slope then. And it wasn't long after I got out of high school, I started, I tried quitting drinking once at 20 or 21. I started and go to go and see different individuals to help me with my anger, the way I was thinking. Um, my mom at that point, kind of right around when I graduated, was going through a bit of a healing process herself. Mm-hmm. And she would talk about all these different concepts and ideas and the different healers she would go and see. She went more of the, a deeper spiritual route. And me being a male 19 in the early 2000s was like mom get the heck out of here with that that hippie garbage Mm -hmm. but again it's what planted the seeds early on and it stayed there and when i decided to finally quit drinking which is just about 10 years ago after a month in aa it was like a rocket was lit underneath me all of that stuff came back that mom had told me for 5 6 7 years it was like that whole concept about oh i'm the one responsible for my thoughts oh i'm the one responsible for my feelings all that stuff just came back instantly it was like oh so it really doesn't matter who i work with in the end i'm going to still have to look at myself so true So would you say that you have done more work on your own or are you still seeking assistance from professionals? I don't want to confuse anyone here because I do think there's a valuable, extremely valuable aspect of healing that's found in relationship. Uh, Gabor says this all the time. Our trauma happened in relationship and we'll find healing in relationship. And I think that we can, through relationship, find areas that make us feel safe, make us feel comfortable, 
make us feel accepted. And early on, while some of those traumas, while some of those wounds are so fresh that we can't see past them, that I would say a level of a, a relationship, be that with a therapist, a mentor, uh, a meditation teacher, a shaman, whatever route you want to go, that that's extremely valuable and important until you have the capacity to start to sit with your own stuff, which I find is kind of where I'm at now, where I still see my homeopath and I still see my mentor probably once a month, but 90% of what I'm bringing to them now is more theorizing. Uh, it's a back and forth conversation where most of my self work is probably done in the sauna in the morning while everyone's asleep. I'll mm -hmm. go in there and I'll sit with the difficult sensations that are happening in my body and be like, okay, let's, let's get into this. Let's see what's happening here. So a real evolution has taken place is what I'm hearing. If you're loving the show, I want to hear your feedback. Take a screenshot showing your five-star rating and that you're subscribed to us on Apple Podcast or are following us on Spotify. Then head over to the Rising Strong Podcast Facebook page. Hit the message button and send it my way. You'll be entered to win some Rising Strong swag. I will draw one name at the end of each month. Good luck and thanks for listening. I searched for that healer, that saint, that guru that's going to like tap you on the forehead and take all the pain away. Yeah. Oh man, did I try. But then when I seen, okay, that's me, like 35-year-old mm -hmm. me, 38-year-old me, 39-year-old me today is the only one that's going to save five, six, seven-year-old me. It was like, oh, so even the person I'm sitting across from, they can only save themselves also. And that is something that we all have to learn. And, you know, some of us learn it at 35. Some of us learn it at 45. Some of us learn it earlier on. But I think that that is the first step on everyone's journey. It's all up to me. And then number two is I believe that this is possible and I can do it. I think a big part after that too, that is extremely difficult, especially nowadays, is the level of responsibility that comes with that. We, I mean, we could say it this way, that you're creating your own world. You're creating your reality. I find to just simplify that to be like, the only one that can think my thoughts is me and my thoughts have a direct relationship to what's happening inside my body. How I'm perceiving the world right now has a direct relationship to what's happening inside my body, and I'm responsible for that. So powerful. So let's fast forward a little bit to April 6th, 2018. I know it's a day I will never forget. I will never forget where I was when I first heard the news. You were driving behind the Humboldt Broncos team bus. You saw things that day that no one should ever have to see. You even helped at the scene, identifying players, coaches, and staff. Can you take us back to that day? Absolutely. I remember 
I was probably seven, eight minutes behind the team. And the last text I got from anyone would have been, for those that are familiar with Saskatchewan, would have been between Kipabiska and Tisdale. And then when I got to Tisdale, I got a call from Nipwin's assistant coach asking if I had heard from anyone. I said, no, no. A few minutes ago I did, but I'll I'll try and get in touch with Mark. And then I tried calling Mark, no answer, no answer. And so then I called my wife and I said, honey, I heard that from Nipwin's assistant, the team was in a bus crash. I can't get a hold of Mark, but I said, don't panic. I'm sure it's like a flat tire or they hit a moose and they're probably offloading the equipment and just waiting on half tons or something to get a run to the game. It'll be a late game. I'll be home late. No worries. And so her and I didn't talk again until I pulled up to the scene. And when I got there, it was, it was initially like make believe. And I probably would have completely lost my mind without the shock because the first thought that came to me when I seen the accident was why do we have so many hockey bags? I could see all these green sod packages which were similar similar to our our bag colors i'm like why do we have so many bags and i could see the ambulances and fire trucks and police and other people start to show up and even when someone would call my dad my wife a parent i would tell them what i was seeing but it was from this deep disassociated state and my mind just kept going why do we have so many hockey bags and I know that that was just a protective mechanism my body and mind were doing to to keep me from absolutely losing it. They put me in a uh, the fire chief's half done, mm-hmm. just far enough away from the scene that I couldn't uh, I couldn't tell who anyone was, but I could see enough of what I, I understood what was happening. And then shortly after that, I seen our chaplain show up and I walked up to his vehicle and a police officer asked us to go to the hospital. And it was during this time when we were driving that a wonderful pattern of mine, that abandonment pattern showed up where I had learned from my mom. I started to text Rochelle and like hide everything that has to do with hockey at home. I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be Chris Beaudry. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. It was one of the, not the first time, but the largest point in my life where I seen like, oh, these sensations are so big and so difficult. I just want to run from them. But when I got to the hospital, I couldn't run. I was asked to start identifying people, start recreating possible seating plans and things like that. But in the back of my mind, it was still escape, escape, escape. I'll get out of here soon enough. And that was the same as when I was taken to the church and shown the list of the people who they knew had passed away. And it was like telling myself, this isn't real. This is make-believe, just escape. And that mindset stayed until the coroner called me. And the first time he called me, I actually hung up on him. But he called again at 5 in the morning. And said, Chris, we need you to be in Saskatoon at noon today to identify the rest of the bodies. You're the only person left on earth that knows everyone here. At the time, it wasn't 
difficult because it was the only thing to do. It When the coroner told me that, I felt like I have a job now. This is what I can do to be a coach now. And one of the biggest things I always used to say why I coached was I coached to help boys uh, be men of integrity and empathy who will lead, be responsible, and change the world for good. And that was one of my biggest coaching beliefs. And I was like, okay, where's integrity? Where's responsibility here? You're asked to do something. Let's be a coach now. Let's go. And so I did. I went in and I did that. And until I left, it it didn't seem difficult while I was going through it until my mind had a chance to start creating something about it after. And I created a lot of stories about what happened in the morgue, about it being the worst moment of my life. And anytime I would think of it, I'd end up on the floor shaking and how it was this horrible, horrible thing. And then I created a story about service, how I went in there to say that this is Jacob and this is Darcy and this is Logan and this is Brody so that a mom didn't go in there and say this isn't. Mm. And that story of service actually helped me for about a year and a half till I could actually look at what happened because that story kept me away from just the uh, tremendous pain that I was feeling of walking through a building looking at, at that time, 14 people that I loved, that they were gone. In reality, that's what I did. That's what happened. But I had to create enough stories till I had the capacity to, to sit with that. And it took you about a year to be able to sit with it or longer? Uh, the first time I sat with it was about a year. And it, it's been a continual thing that shows up on and off. I, I see it as a gift now when it shows up, even though it, it's some of the most difficult. Um, I don't know if difficult is the right word. It's a large emotion that has lots of tears with it. And to me, that's not wrong. It's not bad. I'm not manly for not for feeling that way. It's just what's here. Absolutely. Grief is a tough one. And I think grief has got many, 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 many emotions wrapped up in it. And I think every time that grief shows up, it can actually feel and look different for everybody. And I think that's sometimes where the confusion comes into play with grief. Have you found that your ability to cope with your grief has changed over time? Yeah, I think that grief has become such a different thing. I used to think it would only had to do with death, where to me, I think grief is no more or less than a change in a familiar pattern. And so in a sense, we're grieving every day. And a lot of times we're just escaping that grief. Like if both of us were on our way to work this morning and in traffic, we met a train, that's a small, tiny level of grief. And normally, how do we deal with that? Oh my God, I'm going to be late. Oh, geez. No, no, no. Instead of just seeing what does that feel like to be with that level of anxiousness or is that a moment to actually just check in and see what's happening to the little bit larger griefs where, and, and we're not going to big yet, but just that you burn supper or you're late for the kid's sports game, or you don't have enough money for this month's bills, that those are changes in familiar patterns. And then we can go to the big ones, the losses in life, the divorces, the loss of a job the loss of an identity, that all of those are grief. You're right. 
I had never used those words, but I think that we we grieve a lot of things in life. As you said, it could be loss of job, loss of pet, loss of relationship. There's there's thousands of them. I would say that we could kind of do two things. One, can we just drop the label? Grief, because that just in itself, it puts people on their heels sometimes. When if we drop the label, it, it, it invites us in to a little bit easier thing to work with. Do you think though that anything could have prepared you for that day or anything could have prepared me for the day that I lost my daughter? I can only speak for myself and I don't know that anything would have. No, and I don't think there's anything that should. I think the only thing we can prepare for is to be with what we're currently feeling. Be with what's actually happening. Instead of Yeah. Instead of following those stories is again, I mean, if I didn't follow all the stories I created through the, the humble crash, I would have had a lot easier life the first two and a half, three years. Interesting. So how have things changed for you in these past years? Oh, I'm finally able to look at myself and my life and see what I actually, I want. Can act from the place that I want to, that I can look at my life and go, you know what? I want to public speak more than I want to farm. And I can have those difficult conversations. I can sit down with dad who doesn't really understand a lot of what I'm talking about. And I don't need to teach him about it. I don't need to make him understand. I can just say, dad, this is what's important to me now. And this is what I'm going to do. And mm-hmm. I can let him be sad. I don't need to fix him or save him then. Isn't that a powerful realization to come to? All we can do is be present for other people. And it's not our responsibility to, as you say, fix them, change them, or or carry their load. We can't carry anyone's load, anyone's grief, anyone's pain, except our own. That was a huge part in my own journey as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most unloving, uncompassionate things we can do is say, you need to change. Right. Like, like that's the be me saying to you, Lisa, you're not the Lisa I need in my life. You're not the Lisa that fits my mold of perfection. So turn yourself into that so my world's better. Like how unloving is that? We do that to our loved ones almost every day. Honey, can you work on this? Oh, if you just did this a little different or a little better, if, if we're on top of ourselves, we'll see where that's coming from. You're right. It, it comes from us, right? Yeah. So as you mentioned, you do a lot of public speaking now, and you've even started your own grief sharing group. How is this helping you on your healing journey? The public speaking aspect, I absolutely adore because not only do I get to go out, I mean, I've been all over North America speaking, but to get in front of such different groups of people, everyone relates to my story on some level. And I even invite them to be like, don't listen to my story, listen to your story and my words. And then after we have such great conversations like this, and it's like, if I can go and share the whatever's happened to me and it's the catalyst for someone then opening up and saying 
Chris, this is the first time I've told anyone this. And I've heard that hundreds of times now. And I love it because I know I'm not going to be the last person. And that's to me, that starts a cycle of healing because they're going to share their story. And that's going to inspire someone else to share their story. And on and on we go. You are so right. When someone gets up and shares their story about a certain topic and it's raw and it's real, that's what you remember. That's what you go home with. And I think that's the power, Chris, of you sharing your story on the big stage. Everybody is going to remember your story. And either they're going to remember it in a way that they think, man, if that guy can go through all of that stuff and be doing well and chasing his dreams, that gives me hope. Or they tell their, their own story. Mm-hmm. And that has power for the next person. And that's actually how this podcast came to be. I think everybody everybody has a story that is so worth sharing and that we can all take strength and growth from everyone else's stories. How long have you been public speaking now? Uh, five years, just over five years now. Awesome. Yeah, it, awesome. Was, it was strange. It was my high school asked me like seven weeks after the accident after the Mm -hmm. accident to just to come talk at awards night on how i got to where i was and i was like i have no idea what you're wanting me to do (laughs) well i i found out really early too that that was gonna be part of what was healing for me and it was shortly after that when the grief group started and i seen again like i've been in aa for four years pretty much to the day and when I was going to AA I was like this ain't working because Mm -hmm. I could tell what I was sharing at AA had zero to do with addictions and it was freaking people out making them uncomfortable and I was like I got to sit around people that understand what's happening just like I did when I quit drinking Mm -hmm. and it works for me I know it doesn't mean that it works for everyone it doesn't have to work for everyone but it worked for me Mm -hmm. And there's a power to that when you share something with another person. And to me, that's magic. Now, you've talked about a lot of things that have been helpful for you. And I really love the fact that that you've dug deep into the spiritual side of things. That's definitely helped me on my journey as well. But what have you found to be the most helpful thing for managing your mental health, your stress, your PTSD, your trauma? you got a lot going on, Chris. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that your brain kept replaying the accident over and over again. So really what has helped you most? Embodiment. And I'll I'll give you a short story here on why embodiment's been so important. So last winter, my daughter ended up in the hospital. She had a small lump on her jaw and it wouldn't seem to go away. And when we got there, they told us it was cancer. It ended up being a deep jawbone infection. And all through the time, I'm, I'm Mr. Mental Health going all over the road talking about it. This had me locked in such a PTSD state all summer that I would lose two to three days at a time. I have no memory of it. I would get up. I would just go outside and work blindly and come home and just sit in a shock looking at her being like, my baby's going to die. And the one thing that I was afraid to go in and feel is what it was like in the hospital when they told me, we think your daughter's going to die. Oh my gosh. 
until I did that, until I worked up the courage to just feel what I could for a minute, scream, cry, almost throw up, and then again next week, feel a little more, feel a little more, did I come out of that haze? And to me, there are no answers that aren't found outside of our pain. The only place we're finding answers is in the pain. Embodiment to me is at the top of the list. And by embodiment, you mean lean into your pain? Lean into whatever is happening inside your body, not in the mind. It is a practice and I have to work on it just like exercising and mm -hmm. anything else. It, it's a practice. And when life throws life at you, that to me is my biggest job to like, okay, how can I, how can I be here with what's happening? Like even for my daughter with Sophie, she didn't need a dad who was all freaked out and PTSD thinking, oh my God, she's going to die. She's going to die while she was trying to heal. Like she needed someone who could just look at her and be there and say, what do you need right now? Mm. Instead of me being the one filled with all these needs. And making her feel worse probably by, yeah. by feeling that way. So clearly mindfulness is just a huge part of who you are now. And I'm assuming that uh, because of your coaching background, that physical fitness is a big part of your life as well. And being out on the farm, moving your body. When I was a coach, I would say not as much. I mean, I've been doing yoga for 15 years now. As I was actually in a, a bus accident with the senior hockey team in 2011. And I got compartment syndrome on my right leg. And so after that, I said, I, I don't want to be limping at 40. I don't want to be in a wheelchair at 60. So I've started doing yoga every day since then. I, wouldn't, I won't go outside on the farm until I'm done because I know otherwise I'll be in pain at the end of the day. And so just that aspect has been extremely beneficial. Yoga can be whatever you want. It can be a spiritual practice. It can be a health practice. It can be a way to relax. It can be a way to go enjoy some time with friends. You, you can make it whatever you want. Just know what your goals are with it. So I'm sure there's lots of folks listening here that would love to follow up on what you're doing out in the world, Chris, because it's, it's absolutely fantastic. You have a brand new website. Uh, so if you could tell us what your website is and where people can find you on social media, that would be great. Yeah, my website is crbwellness.ca. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at chrisbaudry9. My wife is a wonderful, wonderful human who manages 90% of my social media because I'm not a big fan of social media. I find my, my little dopamine addicted brain can get sucked into wormholes I don't enjoy. So I don't keep the apps on my phone. So if you reach out through there, though, she'll pass messages on to me and I'll get back to you. Fantastic. And actually, that's a great tip about social media. I don't know that it's all that great for our, our mental health and turning off notifications at minimum can actually benefit us greatly. Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, as we were talking here, I thought of about three other things that we could probably talk about on another episode at some point in time. But thank you so much for your time today. I know that uh, our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. You're welcome. It was fun.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Rising Strong Mental Health and Resilience. Be well and stay resilient, my friends. We'll catch you next time. Oh, and one more thing. If you're like me and you find it helpful to write things out, you will love the Oprah-approved Promptly journals, especially the Peace of Mind journal. I've been using these for years now. You can check them out at bit.ly slash calming journals. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash calming journals. By the way, when you purchase a Promptly journal, you will be supporting this podcast. So thank you so much.